0: This week, we're talking about our last core value, community. Now, it's impossible to to really uh, capture all the aspects of community from one passage in one week, and so we're going to talk about one aspect that we think is foundational, that we think is important to community, and that is the idea of unity. So we're going to talk about unity from Ephesians 2, and I want to tell you a little story. So I remember back uh, 16 years ago... Uh, I was in college, and I had tickets to um, a Nebraska Rice football game. But on the week that that game was supposed to happen, I don't know if any of you uh, remember that game, but the week that that game was supposed to happen, uh, 9-11 happened. And uh, obviously, one of the worst terrorist uh, attacks, one of the worst uh, tragedies on U.S. soil ever. Thousands of people died uh, in 9-11. And so that following Saturday... All of the college football games were postponed. Do some of you remember this who are a little older like me? And that Nebraska Rice game, it got moved back to the following Thursday. Now, so it was a little, a, a little after a week after 9-11 had happened, and I remember there was still this sense of shock over the whole country over what happened, And there was also kind of this sense of of camaraderie between everyone. And when I walked into Memorial Stadium for probably, you know, the 30th time to watch that game, the usual Nebraska rabid fan base wasn't quite so rabid that day. And I remember before the game, pregame, as always, everyone stands up and you sing the national anthem, but instead of having just the normal way to sing a national anthem, a firefighter came out with his yellow coat and his red hat, and he hoisted the flag that day. And he marched out uh, to midfield and we sang the national anthem together. And that day when we sang it, I I feel like people stood a little bit taller that day. And the people who were singing sang a little bit louder than usual. And I don't know if there's ever been a time in the history of Memorial Stadium where where Nebraska fans weren't actually that concerned with winning. And the Rice fans who were there, they, they maybe weren't that consumed with pulling off the upset, but instead that we were united as citizens. So you had this 76,000 crew of Nebraska fans and probably about 180 Rice fans, and we weren't clinging to our, our primary things as being fans of our college team, but instead we had locked arms as citizens of the United States. You know that kind of feeling, right? The same thing happened just a couple weeks ago for the, the congressional baseball game, Republicans versus Democrats. It's a charity thing where they play against each other, and a couple days before, at a Republican practice, someone opened fire, and, and the shooter wounded a couple people on the Republican side. And you remember what the statements were the days after. Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, who's a Republican, said, an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. And then Democrat House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi said, On days like today, there are no Democrats and Republicans. Only Americans united in our hopes and prayers for the wounded. We feel these moments of unity, and something kind of comes alive inside of us when he sense this. That there's, there's something greater, and the reason is, is that our hearts and our minds are wired for unity like this. They're wired for community, and unfortunately, sin has wrecked that. Now, I know what some of you cynical people are thinking, and I kind of thought this too. After that baseball game, you're like, well, that whole unity thing sure lasts a long time, right? Like, you look on social media, you look on CNN, you look on Fox News, and there has never been more hatred out there for the other side, right? That those unifying moments, like, like I experienced in Memorial Stadium, are, are kind of the anomaly. And really division and, and divisiveness is, that's the norm. And so in our world, we have Republican versus Democrat. You have Jew versus Palestinian. You have Nebraska versus Iowa. You have shopping local versus shopping at chains. You have breastfeeding versus formula. You have vaccines versus no vaccines. You have public school versus, you have public school versus uh, homeschoolers, and then you have like shopping organic and eating organic versus whatever the rest of you inferior people eat that's processed and not good. That one's already been settled, by the way. Um, <clears throat> but our world is more defined by division than unity, and Christians in the church, we have a unique calling and a unique opportunity. To display this kind of unity found in Memorial Stadium in 2001. A a unity that says, yes, we're different, but our differences don't define us. What defines us is that we are brothers and sisters united in Christ under Christ. Amen? So in the passage for today, Paul's going to describe Um, how Jesus has busted through one of the greatest divisions, disunity in all of history by his death on the cross, that he made these people who were enemies into friends. And I think that, that through gospel unity, that God wants to challenge us this morning to be unified in a way that will have an effect both inside these walls and outside the walls. Outside the walls in a way that we are a a definition of unity, the outside world, that they could see our unity and non-Christians would look in and say, wow, there's something different about them. And inside our walls, if we embrace this kind of unity, I think we're gonna stop comparing ourselves to each other we're gonna stop judging each other. We're gonna stop avoiding people who hurt us and we'll come to love and appreciate every single person in this room for, for who they truly are in Christ. Now, the flow of the passage is pretty simple today. So, so it starts off with this, dividedness. And then at the end, uh, Paul gives this beautiful picture of what community with Jesus looks like. And so you go from division to unity. And the thing that spans the gap is the gospel. And, and Paul's going to show how the gospel does surgery on our divided, divided, hateful hearts in order to move all of us from disunity to unity. And so essentially the flow is that we divide and Jesus unites we divide and then Jesus unites. So let's first talk about how we divide. So Ephesians 2:11 and 12. I want to read the first couple of verses. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of a promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, as we talk about uh, the disunity in this passage, the challenge is to get our heads around what's actually going on here, the culture that's happening here. Because as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's writing primarily to Gentile Uh, Gentile Christians that are here, and Paul is reminding them in this section, he's saying, hey, don't forget what you came from. Don't forget how bad it was back there. And at first, he gives all these examples. And so first, he talks about uncircumcision versus circumcision. And if you don't know what that means, you can ask your mom or dad afterwards. I'm too embarrassed to describe it here. But the idea is that they were actually name-calling, it says they called them the uncircumcision. The Jews would actually hurl an insult and it was insulting to call them the uncircumcision. There was this dividedness. Then Paul gives this list of kind of theological things that were bad news for the Gentiles. First, he said they were separated from Christ. And what that means is they, those, the Gentiles didn't have a hope for a coming Messiah. At least they didn't know they had a hope for the coming Messiah. Then it says that they were alienated from Israel. And what that meant is God chose his people and it wasn't them. He chose the Jews and not the Gentiles. Then it says that, that, um, that there were strangers to the covenants of a promise. That all the promises that God had given, he gave to his own people and not to them yet. And then it says that <clears throat> they had no hope and no God. Now, they did have gods in their culture that they worship, but Paul is saying you didn't have the God. You didn't have Yahweh is your personal God, therefore you didn't have any hope in what was coming. They were outsiders, the Jews were insiders. Now these theological truths don't really get at the deep-seated hatred that existed, so I want to give you a couple of examples from history that that maybe will help you understand this a little bit better. So the first one is this. So in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, there was an outer court where the Gentiles were able to come and worship. And between there and the inner courts where the Jews were allowed to go, there was a four and a half foot wide stone barricade that existed there. And since then, uh, pieces of this barricade have been found. And in the inscription on there was that if Gentiles, it says essentially, if Gentiles pass Go past this barricade. You will be charged, and you will be executed. They were outsiders. Or how about this? In those days, uh, some prideful Jews had a saying that essentially said that that the Jews said that Gentiles were created by God for their bodies to be fuel for the fires of hell. It gives you a little idea of the animosity. Also, it was unacceptable in those days for a Jew, in, in common practice, for a Jew to help a Gentile woman in time of need in childbirth because the thought of doing that would bring only one more Gentile into the world. How about just one more? And that is there are stories told of Jewish families back in the day. Every once in a while, a Jew would marry a Gentile and, uh, and vice versa. And if a Jewish son or daughter married a Gentile, there have been stories told that the Jewish family held a funeral for their son or daughter that married a Gentile because after that they were as good as dead. You get the idea. They were outsiders and the Jews were insiders. And the growing animosity had been growing uh, for for centuries, these prideful Jews and these hurt and, and and bitter Gentiles, and in the place of this of this separation, there was just years and years of resentment that had been built up. And so Paul is coming in to proclaim the gospel into this disunity in verse thirteen, when he says, "But now in Christ Jesus." But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And when the Gentiles heard the gospel message for the first time, I imagine they were like, wait, what? Like, I thought we were fuel for the fires of hell. Like, I thought nobody wanted to, to, to bring us into the world. We're just wasted space. And now your God loves us just as much? So in this next section, Paul's going to take this disunity and he's going to go below the surface and he's going to diagnose the problem of why there was this disunity. And then he's going to do this gospel surgery to remove that and to build in unity, in true community. And so I'm going to hop to the next few verses. This is what it says, verses 14 through 16. It says, for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now this disunity that they had was just a symptom of the problem. It said that at a heart level they had hostility. Or hatred for one another. And and what was the cause of that hatred that it says in this verse? It says, or in verse 14, it says that there was a dividing wall. Now, stick with me here because this gets a little bit thick for a second. So, so this dividing wall is actually a reference to the law that was given to the Jews in the Old Testament. You know, in the first uh, five books of the Old Testament, they have, um, you know, the Ten Commandments got issued to the Jews, and they have these um, these food laws and these festivals, and uh, they have this system of sacrifices, and and I'm going to... Paul's gonna tell us or describe to us really the purpose of the law and then their distortion of the law and and why it became a dividing wall. So why this law divided them. So, So here's the deal with this. So the Jews got this law and they were supposed to live in the way that God had shown them And what was supposed to happen after that is that they were supposed to show God to the world, kind of like Andrew talked about last week, being images so people would look at their community and see how loving they were and see how uh, justice-oriented they were and to see how truth-seeking they were. And and when they saw that community, the, the Gentiles were supposed to go, oh, those people have something amazing. Their God must be amazing. It even says in the Old Testament that the law was given to the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. And so by living according to the law, the Jews were supposed to be a light. They were supposed to show God to the rest of the world. Now here's the problem. They took the law itself and they turned it into their pride and joy. In other words, they said, hey, God picked us and not you. They said, we're God's favorites, not you. And they started despising the Gentiles because they didn't have this law. They started saying, man, you guys are nothing. You guys aren't God's favorite. We're God's favorites. And because of that, the Gentiles started hating and despising them back. Now, before we go on casting any stones at the Jews or the Gentiles, I think this, in essence, happens in all of our hearts today. We can see it in our own divisiveness. And this, how, this is how it works. It works in the exact same way. We have a tendency to take the best things about ourselves and we turn them into our pride and joy and we use it against others to, to judge others for not being like us. Pastor Tim Keller, he, he calls this uh, superiority to the different. We have this thing that, that makes us feel great because we're, we're good at this one thing. And and so I'm superior to anyone who's different. That's the hostility that existed here. Now it goes kind of like this. So if you have something that you're proud of, okay, say, Hey, I eat organic and I recycle and, and and I shop local. You don't just stop there, but then you're like, and I'm kind of better than those people who don't right. Or or maybe uh, you have kids and you're like, man, I have done my research and I've decided not to vaccinate my kids. And I I homeschool my kids because it's what I think is best. And anyone who vaccinates has really been duped by the medical community. And parents who send their kids to public school are kind of lazy because they don't want to do it themselves, right? Or... I go to UNO, and I'm on a full-ride academic scholarship. I live in Scott Hall. Uh, you know, I'm pretty smart. And, and I'm better than those kids who get their gen eds done at Metro. You know how this goes? Or how about this? I, I, you know, I live in Midtown, and I only drink coffee from places like Archetype. <laughs> and I don't drink wine out of a box, Right? Is that, is that a faux pas to talk about wine in church? Uh, and I listen to the right bands, and I shop at the right places, and really anyone who lives west of 72nd is really just uncultured, and they probably do date nights at Applebee's. It's an us against them kind of thing. You see, uh, many times uh, this can be not in like maybe the things that we do, but maybe, maybe just things that we're good at. So for me, uh, let me tell you a quick story. So um, after Carrie and I were married, we went on a honeymoon to Mexico. We came back, and the first week in our new apartment, uh, the, the main and really only source of contention between us was how we each dealt with customer service people on the phone, okay? And so we had to call the cable company, we called uh, you know, our cell phone, we called the bank to merge all these things. We had like 100 calls to customer service people, and I was very chill and calm. And, and Carrie's just, just a little bit more in your face when she talks on the phone, okay? Now, what happened is, I heard her do this, and I'm like, man, this, this is kind of crazy, because here's, here's the background on me. Um, one of my things that I take pride in is the fact that I am a calm, patient person. And, and the important thing to me is that if you communicate something, you communicate it in the right way. You say it with the right tone, in a gentle and loving way. And so I have taken this to heart my whole entire life. And to be honest, the people who I judge the most in the world, the people who are the most annoying to me, the people who I question their salvation, are the people who, who are extremely blunt, who something just comes to their head and they just say it out of their mouth. Or it's the people um, who, who get all emotional in, in conflict. I'm like, why can't you just be calm? So you can imagine my surprise when the first week after our, our honeymoon, my wife's on the phone, and, and she's, she's getting emotional, right? Now, here's the deal. I took something that is good, right, a, a patient, gentle loving tone, and I turned it into my pride and joy, and I put myself up on a pedestal and say, anyone who doesn't do it like me isn't as good as me. Now, here's the problem. One, it puts all sorts of pride in me, and it makes me judge other people, but the other thing is, is I become blind to the fact that, that there's a reason that people are blunt; It's to communicate truth And my wife is a lot better at going into conflict than me. And she can communicate truth, and she's a justice seeker in a great way. And not to mention, she got the cell phone company down by $30, and I didn't do anything because I was too nice. (laughs) I didn't see any of that because I was busy sitting up on my high horse judging her, right? Because I thought my way is superior. So you think about how this ends up playing out. For each one of us in this room, we're all scrambling and clamoring to find our our identity, our, our superiority in something. And so we just choose or we, we choose something that we're good at. Hey, I'm a musician. Hey, I'm a hard worker. Hey, I I live in Midtown. Hey, I'm really smart. Hey, you know what? I'm really social and relational and I'm not awkward at all. Or or you know, I'm a I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. And all of our hearts are, are fighting for this identity and we take pride and joy in this thing and it turns into this superiority, a superiority to the different. And you know what that results as? It's disunity. It's division, and it starts in our hearts, and it flows out onto our social media feeds, it flows out into our friend groups, it flows out everywhere you look. So if you wonder why our world is so divided, this is a huge part of it. In this passage, Paul addresses the prideful Jew, and he addresses the far-off Gentile and says, you both need me. One of you isn 't any better than the other. He says in verse seventeen, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentile, and he had to preach peace to those Jews who were near. You see the the, the peace that Jesus brings in the gospel it does surgery on our on our hearts and it addresses our superiority and our inferiority. Let me tell you how it addresses our superiority, so first of all it It humbles us that no matter how great we are, no matter how much money we make, no matter what we've accomplished or how cultured we are, we still need to be saved. The Jews were in the same boat. They thought they were the favorites. They had the law. God was God was their God and he was their people and they still turned their backs on God and screwed it up. Even the people who were near in a religious sense, God had to come and destroy their pride by Jesus coming on the cross and coming near to them to die for the very pride that turned them against him. And the reminder for us in this is that no person has ever earned their way to Jesus. No one. You haven't been moral enough. You haven't memorized enough verses in Awana growing up. You haven't had enough church leadership positions. You haven't been good enough to earn your way to God. You have Jesus because he has sought you and he has saved you in a state of complete lostness. It kills our pride and it kills our superiority. So as we look around the room in here, the community that... Jesus has created. We all sit on equal ground at the foot of the cross. So there is nothing greater about being a 4.0 student than being a 2.0 student. There's nothing better about being a rich person than a poor person. There's nothing better about being a relational and social person versus being a socially awkward person. There's nothing about, better about being a cultured, creative person than being someone who drinks Folgers and goes to Applebee's on date nights. I actually don't know if I believe that last one. But the reality is is. is refugees and CEOs, they stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, they stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. And while a lot of us have feelings of of superiority, the reality is uh, many of us struggle with feelings of inferiority. I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm not smart enough. Uh, I can't land that job like them. I don't have my life, my, life, my life figured out like those people have their lives figured out. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not cool enough to be in their friend group. And, and the message of the gospel to your heart this morning is that that hostility that is created by these earthly measures of superiority and inferiority, that is completely gone. Jesus did away with that when he died the death that you deserved on the cross. And Jesus has said to you, if you are feeling inferior this morning, I want you in my community. I want you in my family. I want you to live in community with people who are not like you and display me to the world. I want you to do that so you can show me off to the world. This is the vision that Paul Uh, starts to give us for community, and he teases it out in the last three verses by giving us three metaphors of what it really looks like. And, and, And first, he starts in verse 19 by saying that we are fellow citizens in verse 19. Now, imagine the weight of this for Jews and Gentiles being fellow citizens. Remember the stories I told earlier? Like, their Jewishness and their Gentileness had been at the very core of who they are. It had been front and center for centuries and centuries. And, and what Jesus is saying or what Jesus did and what Paul is saying, that your Jewishness and your Gentileness, it just got demoted. And you have a new identity that's more important. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's your real identity. They called it in those days, they said that they were a third race or a new race. That's kind of a cool thought. And for us, the fact is is that, that our skills that we have, our gifts that we have, anything that we consider a part of our identity, when we step into relationship in Christ, it gets demoted. And we are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God. And much like that day back in 2001... In Memorial Stadium, we set aside what we usually consider our primary identity in a football stadium as fans, and we united around being common citizens in Providence. Jesus is inviting us to do the same thing, to lock arms first and foremost, no matter how different we are around being citizens of the kingdom of God. He's our king and we are his people. Now, just as a side note, that doesn't mean that you stop being what you were before. It doesn't mean that you stop being a musician, or you stop being a a business person, or you stop being smart or creative, or you stop being uh, black or white or Hispanic or Asian. But the beauty is that God uses our differences in our unique giftings to create a a more well-rounded community, a more complete community. Now, I do think real quick that we have to check our hearts with this, and I've been wrestling with this this week because, sure, we love the idea of diversity, right? Everyone talks about it. Oh, that's a great idea, but but are we okay with embracing it in our lifestyles? Like, for example, are are the walls of our church building here, or maybe the walls of our home, are they kind of like that four and a half foot barricade in the temple that says, "Okay, that's great that you're out there, but you actually can't come in here. You can't come." close are you okay with people who are different than us being in our city groups in our huddles in our community like if you're social and you're really relational are you okay being in a huddle with a socially awkward person could you stand being in tight-knit community with someone who who has a different native language than you and is a different ethnicity is that okay with you or if you happen to make a lot of money, are you okay with someone who's poor being in your inner circle? Would that be okay with you? Or Providence as a church? Uh, let's think about this. Like, what if God blessed us and we grew numerically, and we saw uh, dozens, maybe hundreds of new people come in here? But the people that added to our church was from the neighborhood just blocks away that's primarily Hispanic, and so you had Spanish speakers coming in here, and all of a sudden, it shook things up a little bit. We started singing some Spanish songs every once in a while, and there was a, a language barrier, and things are, are published bilingually, like, are you going to be okay with that? Or do we have to have it our way, the, the way that's comfortable for us around sameness? See, Jesus has broken down the hostility through the gospel, and no one is inferior, no one is superior. Our primary identity is as citizens in this new body, this new race. And Jesus died to bring us together. Are we going to embrace that or not? The second thing that that Paul says is that we are, in verse 19, he says that we are members of the household of God. In other words, through Jesus, we become family. And the greatest part of becoming family is that we inherit a heavenly Father who unconditionally loves us, who cares for us, who protects us, and, and he's our Father for all eternity. But what else that means is that we inherit brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but But for me, my siblings, maybe other than my wife, are the people that I know the absolute best in the world. I know their pros and cons. They've annoyed me more than anyone else in the world. We've been through more together than anything else. And we've shared more life than anyone else. And through all the ups and downs, there's never any questioning of our relationship. We will remain brothers and sister. We're safe and we're in it to the end. That's just who we are. And I think the church is supposed to be the same way. We're supposed to know each other inside and out. We're supposed to have deep relationships. We're going to have commitment to one another that doesn't change if someone says something offensive. We don't back off when an offense happens, but we press in. And this safety, this intimacy, this, this connection is possible because it's supernatural. And we have a Father who's all powerful, who's holding us together, who's encouraging us, who's sustaining us, who's pressing us in toward one another, toward forgiveness and reconciliation. And we are safe and we're close in the family of God. The, uh, the last metaphor that Paul uses is that we are a temple. It says that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in verse 20. Now, now real quickly, think about this change for the Gentiles. That they went from being outsiders on the outside of the temple, being threatened with execution, to now Paul is saying, there's no more barricades. You are the temple. You're that close to God. You are, are that important. Now, the most unique thing about the temple is... It's where God was. His presence dwelt there, his very presence. And it says in verse 22, you are also being built into a dwelling place for God. In other words, God lives in us. He's in all Christians. The place where people can see God the clearest is in us through us, a community, a community with Jesus at the center of it. And so what this means is that our community is a living and breathing example of Jesus and the gospel to the world around us. As they look at us, they're supposed to be, see God. If there's anywhere in the world that people should be able to look and see the goodness of God and see the good news of the gospel, it's going to be in the church. It's going to be through us. And how we relate to one another. And in an overwhelmingly divided and disunified world where where people are at odds at every corner, at every turn, the church is supposed to stand up and stand out as people who are otherworldly, supernaturally connected, diverse, and unique in a community that is unified first and foremost on Jesus. So the question for us as we wrap up is, can we show the world what a true example of unity is? Providence, are we going to be a community that shows off Jesus to the world by this gospel-centered unity? A new body where where hostility would be replaced with love, where, where bitterness would be replaced with forgiveness, where dividedness would be replaced by unity, providence. This is the church that Jesus has called us to be. Will we embrace this calling to show off Jesus to the world by being united under him? Let me pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you uh, that you have come to save us and unite us. And we're thankful uh, that, uh, that the message is is true, that at the foot of the cross, God, we're all on equal ground, that there is no one greater, no one less. We're all sinners saved by grace. And so, God, I pray that we could just figure out, embrace, live out what this looks like for us. God, help us to be a community that is unified. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Providence. So if you're here for the first time, uh, let me explain what we do. So at this time, we circle up uh, with a couple people who are around us, maybe four or five people. There's going to be some questions that are up here on the screen. You're going to have about uh, five, six, seven minutes to discuss these questions, and then uh, take some time to pray if you're done. And then after that, uh, uh, the band will come up and we'll worship together.